good morning, Catherine, and welcome to the Idabu podcast. Morning, and thank you very much for having me. Very uh, excited. Hey, well, it's great. It's great that we're talking because we we've been introduced by uh, mutual friends and colleagues, um, Tim and Jen. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. No. It's 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 really exciting and it's lovely since I've been running the business that um, I've made and remade so many connections with people that have introduced me to people otherwise I'd have had um, no opportunity to speak to. So yeah, it's been a, it's been an excellent connection. So let let's go straight into the you know the, the there's a key area that that uh, very much bonds us in the world of of work and yeah. and approaches to work and that you you um you spent um i believe it is 18 years at search consultancy um, i did yeah so yeah. that you've now you've now created work happy which we will obviously go into but Talk us through the, your, your journey of, of identifying work happy and, um, and how that came about. How I got here. Okie dokie. Um, it's quite an interesting one, really. It took, um, it took quite a long time, I think, like any sort of major career transition tends to. Um, I, I had a great career. Um, I loved working for Search. I'd been there literally since we'd opened the doors in the Manchester site. Um, and I built up my career. I'd had huge opportunities. I had um, really kind of grown with the business, I suppose. I was, I was 23 when I started. I was given the opportunity to do a management position, which I'd not done before. So I was kind of completely um, into um, a great opportunity right sort of from day one. Um, and I progressed and progressed through the business as we grew it. We grew different sites, we grew different teams, we grew different locations. Um, and I ended up as UK Managing Director for their um, commercial and sort of high volume recruitment is probably the best way to, to kind of explain it, commercial, industrial, hospitality, etc. Um, and I never really fell out of love with the job, which is is probably quite a strange thing to say, but... I kind of, it, it no longer sort of fitted what I wanted for life. And I think, you know, since leaving um, or in the process of leaving, if I'm honest, and prior to leaving, I did a lot of work to really understand what I wanted um, and what my values were and why, a lot of soul searching really, on why I didn't feel like it was working anymore because nothing had massively changed. Um, and what I kind of came to realize really is it just didn't fit my vision of life anymore. Um, I no longer wanted to travel so much. Um, and by travel, travel was Leicester, Crawley, Aberdeen. It, it wasn't um, far-flung exotic places like you imagine when you say you travel with work. But um, I had had two kids. I got to the realization that I wasn't okay with seeing them for half an hour in the morning and an hour if I was lucky in the evening um, and being away from home quite a lot. So I think a lot changed as it does for all of us in our work life and that balance and that, you know, as you, you transition through different ages with kids, you've got so many different needs and so many different things going on. Um, and 
search were amazing with it. You know, I can't criticize them at all in terms of they absolutely gave me as much flexibility um, to kind of bend and shape my hours and the way that I worked as they possibly could. But at the end of the day, I had a very big job um, and it was a very people-based job. So my sense of um, and commitment, if you like, to working with people meant that I wasn't, I didn't find it easy to go, oh, I'm just going to work from home today because I knew the value in me at work was being with people and helping yeah. things and making things happen and, and kind of pushing things forward, not sat in my back room doing admin or reports. You know, that, that was never kind of what I was about really. So I guess I've gone a very long way around um, in saying there that, that it kind of just didn't work for me anymore. So I um, did coaching myself and I think that's where really my eyes were opened to the huge value of coaching didn't if I'm honest massively know much about it before I'd gone into it um I'd done a, a kind of CIPD master's course that had introduced me to, to sort of the concept of coaching and I'd learned the kind of theory of it but I suppose this was the first time that I was into the the reality of being coached and I found it amazing um to say where, that you where did you get coached so I was coached by um, a lady who's local to me um, here in, in Manchester called Caroline Britton. And she was, she was amazing. She, she ran a, a kind of fear to founder program. Um, and it was a lot of mindset work all around sort of blasting away your corporate mentality a little bit. And the fear, which I think comes up and, and stops so many of us doing many things in our lives, not just in our, our careers, but, you know, how to sort of, recognize that fear and push past it um, and I think for me that was a massive thing I had huge huge blocks around loyalty I've been there so long I you know my my board um, members that I worked directly for I'd worked for for 18 years you know they were they were kind of like a work mum and dad to me um, and that was probably the biggest battle I had in terms of facing up to the fact that I no longer wanted to be there um, in terms of feeling like I was letting people down. And I think, again, that is a, a very common block that stops people moving forward to actually a career that they want to do. If you, if you remove, though, the, uh, the need to be uh, loyal to your team, what were the other major fear aspects that you, you found on your plate? when you were talking to Caroline and, and going through this mindset issue? I would say probably and way, way ahead of meeting with Caroline, but was financial. So, you know, and again, I think this is such a common block for people. I'm 42 now. I started working straight from uni, you know, as the years progressed and myself and Nick, my husband progressed in roles and things. We bought different houses. We, you know, your lifestyle grows to, um, the income that that you build um, and I would say for you know a good few years when I was struggling with the balance of you know not being with the kids and work and whatnot I genuinely felt I had no option I genuinely felt I'm stuck I'm, I'm, I'm here now I need to keep earning what I'm earning um, and I need to to keep us you know all in the lifestyle that we're accustomed to and you know I'm not talking fancy shoes and bags there I'm talking mortgage payments and 
bills um, in terms of you know that that base minimum that I needed to to ensure that I was contributing. Um, and I think that's a really real trap for so many people, and and especially so many women, because you know nowadays we're very very much in the realm of dual career families and the the female income is is just as often just as high if not higher than um the you know the the husband or partner um and that makes for transitioning really different you know makes it a really difficult scenario and when you had your kids you just you went straight through kept working um, I did. yeah you know kept it yeah. which is obviously always a is quite a is a challenge and it is quite I guess challenging on your emotions as well in terms of that balance when you do want to be with your kids. Oh, hugely. You know, I think um, myself and so many of, of the women that I worked with and friends and, you know, that are in similar situations, the, the guilt that you push through is it's everywhere. You know, I used to feel guilty when I was at work that I wasn't with the kids. I'd feel guilty when I was with the kids that I wasn't at work. So, you know, was I a proper MD if I was, working four days a week or I was finishing early or or whatever and I think getting coaching has really really helped me sort of understand that your value isn't necessarily just in the hours worked um, and almost spinning that on its head Um, because certainly you know if I go back to to those early days trying to balance two babies and a big job is exhausting and then you know you chuck on top of that sleepless nights and ill children and (laughs) it's a really tricky period of time and I think you know so many people struggle with that um and sadly you see so many um often the mothers have to give up on their careers because it you push yourself to breaking point there's only so far you can go what's the attitude you've taken to the this this financial world I mean the keeping up with the Joneses, the, the need to acquire stuff. How has that played a part in your mindset shift? What, <laughs> what, what practical, I mean, what, what practical changes have you made? How oh, have I done it? Yeah. Well, yeah, um, the before and after. It's been really interesting, actually, because what I've understood about myself and a big part of the course that I did was, with Caroline was about money and about relationship with money. And I remember when I saw it on the agenda and I saw, you know, it started coming up in conversations. I remember thinking, I don't have any issues with money. Money's money. How do you have an issue with it kind of thing? And it was funny because then, you know, the work that she did with me and I was in a a kind of masterclass. So there were another three women um, doing the same program, which worked really well. Um, I started then realizing that actually I do. I, re- I resented money because money was the reason that I had to go back to work and leave my kids. Um, I realized that I spent money on stuff because I could. And I think it actually made me feel better about the fact that, well, if I'm going to go to work and I'm going to have to do this, then at least I can buy this new coat or whatever it might be. Um, And a massive part of, um, I suppose, being able to escape the salaried world was going through an exercise of of literally kind of getting it back to the baseline. So what is it that I need to earn and how can I cut back on stuff that we don't need? And it's amazing what, you know, what you can achieve and, and 
I've, I actually now have got a very, very different approach to, to spending. Um, I'd say I buy to need rather than just a frivolous kind of, it's a new season, let's get a new this and a new pair of boots and a new, new whatever it is. It was always clothes, as you can probably tell that I was uh, most frivolous around. Um, but it's actually quite liberating. It's, it's, I've, it's not bothered me, which the me of two years ago, I would have thought it would make me miserable, but it, it doesn't at all. Yeah. It, uh, so for myself, I've, I've practiced probably not very well, but I practiced minimalism and mm. that, that that's for quite a, quite a while now. And I, I like the, um, I forget how I, I got into it. I remember listening to people like the minimalists who, um, have done some good blogs around it and their their exercise they challenge you to do is take your house pack everything up put it into boxes allocate it oh, into wow. a room and then have have a three-month period where when you need stuff you go into the the room with your boxes and you and you get out of the box and you bring it back into your house and after three oh. months you you see what's been brought into your house and what's left in the boxes and uh, you you typically find that 80 percent of the the stuff is left in the boxes and it's it's a wow. minimalism is a is a kind of miss i think misunderstood uh, approach because it, it's often seen as as missing out on things or your uh, kind of tightness and it's not actually it's a it's a liberation from uh worrying about uh, i uh, yeah, the more stuff you accrue and you have to carry around with you, um, it, it's just, it can weigh on your brain. And if you can remove that, depends on the person, um, mm. then it's a great thing. But, but the other thing about it is that minimalism isn't about necessarily having less stuff. It's about having the stuff which is actually important to you. And yeah. if you want to collect stuff, someone would say, oh, you can't, have, you can't collect anything if you're a minimalist. That's not true. Um, if you collect something on the basis that you're doing it because you really love it and it brings you joy, then collect it. Um, yeah. But if you're just doing it because you want to have, I don't know, six cars in your garage or, or something. And it, the it's newest, the, shiniest version. Yeah, examine the motives. So examine your motives, mm -hmm. try and work out why you're doing stuff, which then you have, I, I, have you ever checked out, what's she called, Marie Kondo? Marie yes, Kondo? yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and her approach is great where she says, you know, you pick stuff up and try and work out if it produces any joy, if it gives you a spark yes. of joy. And if, if it does keep it and if it doesn't, say thanks very much and put it in the bin or give it to charity or whatever yeah. you want to do. But yeah, down, you know, downsizing, getting rid of rubbish, it's amazing how good it makes you feel. It does. It feels amazing, doesn't it? I, I did a lot of it over the summer because I finished work... Um, at the beginning of July and I decided that I was going to have the summer off with the kids because I'd never had the freedom to be able to do that. Um, and I did a lot of that. I did a lot of sorting. I don't know. I'm sure a psychologist would probably uh, have a field day with me and my behavior over those three months because I think I was going through that's a, a, obviously a massive transition. And yeah, those types of things like just clearing out and sorting out and doing things that I would never have had time ordinarily to do like sort through all the kitchen drawers and you know it sounds boring as anything and again you know I keep finding myself thinking oh my god the, the me of two years ago would look at me now and be like who even are you um, but it's it's actually a really 
liberating change. Um, and I think the other, the other thing that's influenced me hugely is, um, and I get so much pleasure from it now, which again is a, is a whole new thing really for me, but is my eight-year-old son um, has become a kind of proper little eco-warrior and he's right. really, he's really kind of awakened us all to the importance of sustainability through, you know, obviously through eight-year-old eyes and mindset, but um, I think that's also had a massive impact on, you know, questioning the norms that we've had before, you know, do we need two diesel cars on the drive? No, we don't. We live in a town and we, we walk pretty much everywhere anyway. Um, so, you know, since leaving work, one of the things that I was thinking is, you know, I've got a lovely company car and what am I going to do if I have to give that up? I'm not going to be able to afford another car. Um, and in reality, we don't need it. So we've had one car f- since I left work and that works great. And it also, you know, it, it feels good because I know that we're, um, we're moving in the right direction in terms of, um, you know, not blasting out diesel fumes to take the kids five minutes around the corner to school. Um, so I think it's, it's had change or it's, it's forced, if you like, changes or us to look differently at things um, and live in a, a kind of more sustainable way, which is good. I mean, there's tons of room for improvement still, but at least we're, we're on that journey. We're on that road. Absolutely. Well, we're all works in progress, you know, and, and, um, uh, it, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting The I, I found myself accruing a bit too much stuff recently. So I, I downsized it in June and mm. then, you know, just running a, an experiment. I, I don't have a car at the moment. Um, got rid of it in June cause was going to be traveling for quite a few months and having something that's sitting in a driveway, uh, or sitting in a parking space and it's just it's going down in value doesn't make you feel good because you're just watching something gather dust you're traveling lots so coming back um i have a moped and and um grab taxi uber equivalent is is pretty cheap here so what what happens if you if you know you know how much it costs you to maintain and look after a car uh, that gives you a pretty healthy monthly budget. And what happens if you just swap that to use Ubers all the time? So yeah. far, I mean, there's times when it's inconvenient. You need to get a rental car chucked over to you so you can go out if you want to go traveling for the day. But most of the time, just using taxis, probably about a fifth of car ownership price. Um, the dynamics are different out here with pricing in, in Thailand versus mm. the UK. But, yeah. but it's still, you know, you're... you're you you don't need the car with a lot of the technologies that are coming out that i mean and and sometimes when i look at this the concept of minimalism mm. i think well actually that's not quite true because if i take my phone my phone in my pocket represents say what used to be a big heavy camera hanging around your neck yes. if i think yeah. about my record collection which is uh, in an attic in london in a london flat <laughs> there's about 3,000 records in there, which used to lug around your car. That's all in my phone. Um, there's all the physical photos. There's all the books, which I don't have because have no physical books. They're all in the phone. So while I say, you know, it, you know, it's about, you know, you have minimalism. The technology we have allows you to carry so much around with you. So if you're not focused on physical stuff, 
most of the things you need, like accruing knowledge through books or information, mm. being able to have memories through photos, it's all within these small devices. And um, it's a lot easier to be minimalist these days than it used to be, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I've not thought of it like that. It has. It's replaced so many, so many things, I guess, hasn't it? Although I must admit, I'm a bit old school when it comes to books. I still like a, I still a like book. a paper book in my hand. <laughs> so I want to I want to go back to you were saying at the beginning about um, looking at what you wanted and and why yeah. you were doing what you're doing and some soul searching. What was could you name someone's listening and having um, feelings or concerns about how they work? What were the early indicators? What was the what were the early moments where you thought? I might, I might have something that needs addressing here. Um, I think it, I, I generally am a, a fairly chipper character. Um, and I could see that changing a bit. I could see that I was easily irritable. Um, I think probably the thing that I found hardest was that I would often get home late after commuting through whatever commuting situation, whether yeah. that was flying from somewhere or sitting on a motorway, I'd get home, I'd be frustrated and cross that I was late nine times out of 10. And I had no patience for my kids. And I just thought the people I love most in the world are getting the worst of me. And that is a really difficult thing to be okay with. And you know, when they're babies, it's a really active time, isn't it? You you know, you physically have to do so much for them. You have to feed them. You have to change nappies. You have to bath them, all of that. But as they get older, I think what they need from you kind of changes slightly. And, you know, they would make comment. They would um, kind of notice that, oh, have you had a bad day, mummy? And, you know, that would just crush me because, you know, I'd think, oh, my God, my whatever it was, four-year-old, six-year-old, um, is identifying that I'm, I'm not in a great place. And I think that was probably, it, it wasn't like an overnight thing. It wasn't a switch by any means, um, but it just was building into almost a bit of an obsession with me. I was, I was because I commuted a lot, so I had a UK-wide role, so I was on my own for long periods of time commuting around. And I think when you're in that situation, you think an awful lot. And I was driving myself nuts thinking, there's got to be some other way, what can that be? Um, and I reckon that was probably a two or three uh, year process. Um, if I'm honest, what escalated it is my dad became quite ill. And I think a major shift in your life really makes you evaluate far far more thoroughly than maybe I had been um, and he battled on with cancer for probably about a year um, and during that period it just became even more magnified I guess that what I, you know what I'm spending so much of my life worrying about and focused on isn't actually the important stuff yes it's important to have a career and to earn money and do a job you love and all of that but actually when you get to the bare bones of it that actually doesn't matter hugely and that 
period of time, I probably got more in my head in terms of, right, I am going to make change. So instead of thinking, um, I can't, I won't, I don't know how to, those sort of negative thoughts, I kind of started moving towards more of a, this has to happen sort of state of mind. Um, He, I suppose, and a lot of his traits I share, um, was a real achiever. He was, you know, incredibly successful in what he did. He got to the top of his game um, and he worked damn hard. And, I, you know, he used to talk a lot about his regrets being that he wasn't around a lot when my brother and I were kids. And I know that that's... you know, a big, big part of my decision was I'm not going to let that be me. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to let those regrets almost echo through into, into my generation, if you like, and the kids. Um, and it, it was at that sort of point where, and then when he, when he died sort of 18 months or so ago now that I just thought, right, change is going to happen. And then that's when I went into action mode, I suppose I came out of my head and I, and I got into action. Um, and it's been really bloody tough. You know, I, I say this to, to everybody that I work with. Um, change is uncomfortable. It's hard. You know, thinking and, and doing mindset work and getting to a point to really understand what you want and why and how you can go about making that happen is really uncomfortable. But it's so rewarding. And, and, and uh, coupled with um, you're pushing a startup. So you, you, you then have that stress as well where yeah. the, the, the buck stops with yourself and, yeah. and the life of a, a startup, it definitely isn't about, you know, the, the four hour work week, the life of a startup then is suddenly you're, you're doing a, a 60 hour week as you push to make it happen, especially in the early days. So it's a, it's a, the, 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 the path to some form of freedom freedom from a perhaps a, a, a corporate lifestyle um requires a kickstart initially which takes over your life completely which ironically Absolutely. is <laughs> exactly what it's you're funny. trying to avoid yeah. it's funny though because it's a very very different i talk about it uh, as kind of a work-life mashup now as opposed to you know i'm a big believer there's no balance you know, I don't, I don't really yeah. think people can create a work-life balance because you get it right and then all of a sudden something changes and it's thrown out again or, you know, life happens, doesn't it? So I'm now, I suppose, enjoying to a degree um, just a very, very blended work life. You know, so perfect example yesterday, I had a busy day, I had a talk in the morning I was, I was rushing around, I had an afternoon that I needed to get stuff done and I got a call from the school that my son had fallen and they thought he'd broken his arm. He hadn't, luckily. Um, so my afternoon was, was kind of thrown up into sort of disarray and I, I ended up working last night. But you know, and you kind of think I could be grumpy about that, but actually I'm so grateful that I was five minutes around the corner from school when that happened and I could go and sit with him in minor injuries and get it checked out rather than in my old world, that would have caused me major stress because I'd have been miles away when it happened and probably had to draft somebody in to, to come and help him and would have felt a huge sort of level of guilt about it. So as much as almost there's, a, there's no boundary, is there? 
um, when you, you're doing a setup or you're working for yourself, there almost isn't that. I start work now and I finish work here. It, it just sort of blends into all of your life. But mm. as much as that has its challenges, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah, it, I, so it's something I struggle with massively because uh, I'm fairly obsessive in, in terms of what I like to do work-wise and at the yeah. same time have a, a big belief that you should create a good work-life balance. And yeah. you know, Idabu is, um, we're 13 years of age, going on 14 quite soon. Um, and Tars, the new business I started, that's, that's just a year, year and a half old. And yeah you obviously you have big commitments and the way i have found that the worst thing you can do is become is get short-termist with your yes. approach to a startup because the culture around us is very much about talking about unicorns and you know our exit after 18 months the the word <laughs> exit you know, didn't exist perhaps 30, 40 years ago. It was, it's very much a dot-com era, uh, yeah. you know, word that came about, as did burning cash. You know, people didn't burn cash. That was a, also a dot-com term that came about. Mm. The idea, you don't, you don't actually make any money. You raise against an idea, you execute, you just lose cash. Um, I talked to my old man about this. I mean, he's like, you know, we just never used to do that. Um, we didn't talk in those terms. You were, you were losing money and you had to, work out a way of, of reversing that. But yeah. If, yeah. if you do have a long-term view, if you do think, um, you know, my startup is, it'll, it's, in five years' time, this is going to be really rolling. If you, if you had a five-year view, then you would go, okay, well, that means that I need to look after myself and enjoy the, the, the journey today, tomorrow. Um, whereas if you're on an 18th month, hey, we're going to do this and then exit, um, it tends to, it doesn't create that sort of culture or thinking of, yeah. um, of looking after yourself and, in, and enjoying it. And then you, you have these, the, the ridiculous ironies of the, the human psyche where most people, not all, but most people who build up and exit a business and end up with a lot of cash find themselves often devoid of all the meaning and, and happiness yeah. they got from their, the challenges of, of the chase of trying to get to that point and find themselves not knowing what to do um, mm. with their time and their lives. So it, we, it, it's ridiculous. We want what we don't actually really desire. It's culturally embedded as some sort of um, kind of a, a, a sort of badge of honor if you do it. Um, but, when you get it, you don't really want it that much. And you realize what you're doing before was perfect. So it's not that I'm against uh, the world of exits or anything, but I think to have it as any kind of primary driver is, is very, very, it's just bad at a number of levels. And, and um, to do your own, to have your work-life balance and to do your own startup, it is about enjoying the journey and enjoying your time. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, I've, I have days, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it, it, it's a real roller coaster. I have days where I think I can absolutely take on the world. I have such ambitious plans. I'm so excited and giddy about it all. And then I have days where I think, what do I think I'm doing? <laughs> how, can, how can I make this work? And I think, had I not gone through the coaching um, work that I did, 
I would be struggling now because I think what I'm able to do now is I can spot when I go into that fear zone and I can spot what that's driving and I keep coming back to why I'm doing this. And I think if you can keep centered on the why, it keeps you on the right track. Um, And ultimately, you know, I'm not doing this to to create some multi-million pound empire. I'm doing this because I passionately believe that too many people are miserable at work and too many people live for the weekends, live for the holidays. And that's life. That's, that's your life just racing past you whilst you, you're kind of looking forward to, to what's coming next and when you can get a break from work. And yes, I need to earn a living. And yes, I need to earn a fairly decent living. Um, but that is what's driving me is, is, is sort of, um, I guess it's changed from how can I make make this pay the bills to how can I scale this into something that's got a real purpose and it's got a real value in helping people. Um, the, the byproduct of that is that it, you know, creates an income, um, for, for, you know, for me and the family. And I think that's what I keep coming back to, um, in terms of why I've done, you know, why I've done this, I've done it so I can spend time with my kids. I've done it so I can focus on my health and well-being and live a joyful life, not one that's racing past me whilst, you know, I'm just running on a hamster wheel, which, you know, very much feels like when I, when I look back now in hindsight, that's very much what my life felt like. So when you look at other people and you observe them on their hamster wheels and you observe their stresses how do you how do you summarize it in terms of you know why are we saying this where has it come from what how how has it manifested we've got more technology than ever before that's designed to free us up give us more time and of course that has had a reverse effect to the it's crazy to the, the isn't soul, it yeah no. the soul dream yeah. so how do you when you're when you're talking to to clients and providing advice what, what's your summary of what's happened it's almost like we've forgotten to change gear I think um, you know I know that um, there was predictions wasn't there that by 2030 we'd all be working a, um, a 15-hour work week because technology would be enabling us to do that and I think whilst that is the case and whilst technology absolutely creates a huge huge amount of efficiencies I don't think in the world of work many of us have have almost changed gear I think there's also almost a badge of busyness or a badge of honor that people kind of wear their their busyness with and you know I was always really mindful of this at work that you know, when, when you're a leader and when you've got a big, busy business, you know, inevitably you are rushing around like a fool. But I think, you know, people, people copy behaviours. And if that culture of almost busyness is there, it, it filters all the way through an organisation. Um, but I also think it, in reality... You know, if, if you look at it from a generational point of view, reverse back a couple of generations and it was less typical that both 
um, both partners were were running full time careers, and I think you know the 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 work involved in raising kids, in just keeping a, a home ticking along, is massive. Um, and I think that that alongside trying to work and, and generate the income that that you need does create this hamster wheel effect where you almost you know you, you can't you can't see a way of slowing things down um, because everything still needs needs doing. Do you, you know? Do you yes, think... you. Can... Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I was just going to say, yes, you can, you know, you, you can order your shopping online and theoretically that stops you needing to go and do a supermarket run, but you've still got to find the time to work out what you need to think about, you know, ordering it to do the order, to unpack the order. It, it, it doesn't make the, the job as such go away. Um, but it is, it's, it's a tricky balance. I think part of it's habit. We're, we're all used to just running at a hundred miles an hour, you know, and we pack our kids' schedules full after school which then makes our our lives even more hectic because you're traipsing around from one class to another class to another um and I think you know that pace of life for me has been a massive massive transition and I've not found it easy I'm quite an active person I'm quite an impatient person um and changing gear from a a busyness point of view is is quite a, a tricky transition that I think I do, yeah I, I don't think we've caught up with the fact that actually technology can take away an element, certainly in the working world, it can take away a big element of the, the grunt work, if you like. Um, but I think people fill their time then with other things. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Well, people, people aren't very good at being bored anymore. Um, no, I, rem- I remember getting on the train when I was a student in Manchester and or living in Manchester after that and um, you get get in, get on Euston with a magazine and um, you'd be bored out of your mind by the time you got to um, to uh, Piccadilly so mm. but that doesn't exist it's laptop yeah. out um, you know films on you you're never bored for a second anymore no and I suppose that creates it doesn't it it's then what's next what's next what's next it, yeah. it's um, it filters into every aspect of your life, doesn't it? So with, with take us through work happy then, because you know, work happy is, is obviously your way of providing a solution to so many of these issues. Tell us about work happy and, and you know, how's it structured and, and how are you, you know, what, tell us about work happy. Okay. So it's, it's obviously all, all fairly new um, and a little bit fluid, I would say, at this moment. But um, certainly from a, the philosophy of work happy is, is that. So, you know, it's to encourage or help individuals find ways of working happy. And I think I've been asked a few times to define what work happy is, which is obviously a valid, a valid question with the, with the company name that I've chosen. But in essence, I think it's different for everybody. So, you know, how I work happy will differ to how you work happy um, based on what's important, you know, to each of us and, and how, you know, our, our life um, goals are and, and what our motivations are. Um, so for me, it's not about me imprinting a this is what worked for me here's a plan go and roll it out in your life because that fundamentally won't work it's about me understanding 
um, and helping the, the, the person that I'm working with understand what will create more happiness for them in their working life. You know, so for, for somebody that might be a promotion and earning more money because they're at a stage in life where they want to, you know, they're, they're, they're ambitious, they want to progress, they want to um, move house, buy a house, whatever that might be, and that money is a, a, a key motivation in that. To somebody else, it might be pairing back almost in the way that I have and looking at actually... I want to focus on X, Y, and Z in my life. So I didn't come at it from an assumptive point of view. I think, you know, one of the things that's really important to me um, from a coaching perspective is no judgment. You know, I've got no agenda and I've got no judgment in terms of what happiness is to somebody else. It's helping them think about it. And I think, you know, so much feedback that I get from people that I work with is I've never even thought about this for myself. You know, we're so busy running at 100 miles an hour, like we've talked about. We um, are very good at worrying about other people. We're good at thinking about things for other people. We're good at quite often coming up with solutions for other people, but we don't stop to actually think about some of the fundamental um, questions that, that can help you understand yourself better. So thinking about, you know, what do I love doing? I remember a really powerful exercise that I did when I was still in the midst of trying to work out what I was going to do um, was a, a John Parkin exercise, which is basically write down an exhaustive list of everything you love doing until you, like, almost until you're repeating yourself, just keep going from things as dramatic as lying on a beach in some exotic location to watching your child's face while they read a book or, or whatever, it, whatever individually to you brings you joy. And then his concept basically is do more of it. And yes, I think that's right. such a powerful thing. And until I did it, I'd never stopped to think, what do I enjoy doing? <laughs> I'd never I'd never written a list about it I'd never consciously you know clearly I'd be think, I'd be doing something thinking I'm having a good time but I wouldn't ever think okay I'm gonna write that down I'm gonna do more of it so I think just bringing that sort of conscious awareness to the core things that that bring happiness about in you um and reading um something I was, I was talking about this at a talk this week and you could just see light bulbs going on and it absolutely did for me that um in the, the concept of positive psychology I don't know if, if you've kind of read much about it but happiness is is kind of talked about as subjective well-being because I think you know one of the things with happiness is it's really hard to measure you know if I said to you now are you happy today it's it's quite a difficult um concept if you like to actually pin down to yes I am or no I'm not or, or where you are on some happiness scale if you like but um one of the things that, that I'd read about that really resonated with me is that um according to this psychologist 50% of your happiness is genetic so you've got this kind of base level of of happiness 10% is then um statistically 
um, determined by are you are you healthy, how educated you are. Statistically, different kind of demographics will um, will report differing levels of happiness. But then, so that accounts for sixty percent. You've then got a forty percent element that is in your control because it is it, that element of happiness comes from what you do and who you surround yourself with and on your actual day-to-day life activities. And that for me was so powerful thinking, hang on, I can control this. If, if, if that bit's fixed, okay, that's fine. But there's this big chunk here that I can take control. And I, the reason I called the company, the work happy project is it's my project. It's me and my journey finding happiness. And I, you know, I read an awful lot of self-development and self-help books and I kind of put into practice the different sort of suggestions as to what works for me and what doesn't. And over time, I've learned how I can manage that affectable level of, of happiness. And that is such a liberating thing. So, you know, to yeah. give you an example, I'm not an exercise bunny by any means. I'm a real reluctant exerciser. But I know if I exercise in the morning, I absolutely will feel happier through the day. Yeah. And if, yeah. I, if I miss a session like I did on Monday, grey, r- miserable Monday morning, it was chucking it down. My friend that I do boot camp with, um, her kids were ill, so she wasn't able to go. So I just thought, oh, I'm not going to go either. I'll stay in my pyjamas and get some work done. My mood hit the ground by about 11 o'clock. And I know that's why. So I went to boot camp that evening session instead, and I felt absolute night and day in terms of the mood that I was experiencing. So it's it's aware it's bringing awareness is is a very very long way round. I've gone um, to tell you in, in terms of how I work with people is it's almost bringing awareness to what what brings them happiness and how they can do more of that in their lives. Well, I, I was going to. That was yeah, going to be one. Oh, sorry, I, I interrupt you. I, I, it's going to be one of my key questions here. When you're when you're talking with individuals, and you, you're talking about work, and you, you're saying you know some people want promotions, some people want to pull back, but the how do you find? I mean, it's, this seems to be so into in um, entwined with people's personal life in the sense of certainly the three mm. fundamentals of good food, good exercise, and good sleep. If you, you have a client yeah. who, who is unable to address those, presumably you're, you're, in a, you're in a tough spot then, or they are. Absolutely. And, and it's only three, and this is why I say it's, it's quite fluid at the moment, because it's only been, I would say, in the last six months that I've really appreciated the importance of self-care. It's massive. And I wish I had appreciated how much more I could have thrived at work had I put myself first from a a self-care perspective. Because, you know, I see so many people and, you know, I can think I could name handfuls of people that I worked with that were pushing so hard to be successful at work but not applying basic principles of self-care. And there's an inevitability to it that at some point, 
that isn't sustainable. And it may be sustainable enough for you to keep going, but it isn't sustainable enough for you to keep thriving. And that is um, in, in context of the work happy, the other side of the business that I'm really passionate about is helping organizations to help their people to work happy. Yes. So, you know, the culture of keep pushing, well, you just need to work more hours, people need to be working harder, they need to do more, they need to do more of this, they need to do more of the other. Actually, you know, when, you, when you study the concept of positive psychology, it flies in the face of everything that, um, that helps us thrive. And actually, when organizations, and there's a lot of organizations now that are brilliantly embracing kind of well-being and helping their people thrive and amending their cultures to, to kind of really help people move forward, um, which is brilliant to see, but you know, there are so many that aren't. And, you know, even just the concept of, um, I did a post on it on Instagram last night about f- feedback, how to give effective feedback can make or break somebody and can change their their whole ability to thrive at work by a comment that a unthinking manager might come out with. Um, and I think that that, that, that aspect of, um, or the responsibility, if you like, from a, a corporate point of view, from a individual manager point of view is really critical to, to self-care because, um, or, or people's ability to, to thrive. Um, it's I used to when I was working I got probably I reckon about four years ago into yoga and that was the one thing that I knew about myself not to miss and I still did god you know I'd miss miss a flight and I'd miss a class that type of thing but um wherever possible I tried never to miss that even if I'd had an absolute humdinger of a day and I was racing there straight from work I knew it would make me feel better. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm also a bit of a yoga nut, and um, yeah. it, it's uh, it's just a no-brainer. And I remember taking the mech out of it about six, seven years ago because a friend was going, saying, "Yeah, that's for old ladies, isn't it?" And um, yeah. you go there, and yeah, there will be some old ladies there, but they kick your ass when it comes to um, <laughs> yeah. the positions and strength that they have because they've been practicing, and and it makes you mentally feel amazing. Oh, massively. And I think I was chatting to a friend the other day whose mother-in-law is an 85-year-old yoga teacher. And she was saying, I'm embarrassed to say she's fitter than me. She's more positive than me. She's more subtle, you know, um, not subtle, that's not the right word. But, you know, her her abilities physically are greater than her 35-year-old daughter-in-law. You know, it's got such benefits. But... It's like I was saying earlier, back to the me of a few years ago, I would have poo-pooed a lot of the things that I now know are critical to my happiness. Yeah. One one question I was going to have, and and I guess it relates a little bit to some of the work I've been doing in task, is that clearly employee happiness from the research we've done, um, when it comes to CSR, uh, corporate Mm -hmm. social responsibility, the, the best form of corporate social responsibility is to is to do it inside the organization as opposed to putting some cash into some external uh, yeah. external organization and sort of ticking a box and going that's done because 
you create that you, you create larger effect and in doing so you engage and you typically increase the happiness of your uh, employees have you have you brought that into work happy or is how how does that play a part in how you advise organizations yeah i think the the focus i was chatting to somebody the other day about this about um values of an organization and csr and the kind of box ticking element of it there are sadly still a lot of organizations who you know know they should be doing these things so they chuck a yoga class on on a wednesday lunchtime and they, they they think they've sort of fixed everything it's it's far deeper than that and there's you know I've read a brilliant article that you guys had posted out on LinkedIn the other day about actually what employees want and what, you know, what they understand um, does bring them value. And the age old things of big drunken nights out and free of, you know, all um, free bars and big social events and things actually now come incredibly low down on the list of what employees want, don't they? And, I think the fundamental, I've always approached business in this way, and I'm really trying to keep clear with, with running my business in this way, is to keep it simple. And the best way to understand within an organization what is going to support their people to work happy is to ask them. Because it will differ, and it will differ from different industries as, as, as to what people are focused on. But I completely agree that, you know, if every if every organization took responsibility for the well-being and the happiness of their people and like you say they they promoted that as their csr then they would attract more talent to come and work for them they would reduce their attrition levels you know th- these are the fact these are the, the sort of factors that i talked to to organizations about because you know you, you sit in front of a, a ceo or a cfo and you start talking about happiness and they look at you like you've, you know, you've grown horns. And it's getting people to understand the importance of happiness at work in context of organisational objectives. So if organisations do put high on their agenda that, that importance of happiness of their people, not immediately maybe, but quickly and over time, they absolutely will see the benefits of increased productivity, reduced attrition, um, ability to hire because their their own teams and their own people will be talking positively about them as an organisation. Um, and they're the, the sort of true benefits that are real. Um, but it you know, it's, it's not necessarily a, an easy um, factor to persuade people to, to see. And, that, you know, I don't think it helps in more difficult trading conditions where eyes are on the bottom line. And, you know, it's, it's easy to oversee um, things that ultimately can create advantages, but maybe over a longer period of time. So do you see yourself in, in terms of organizational work where do you provide experiential learning to them or, or is it more advising uh, management who then would go and execute the, um, the, the plan that you set up and create for them? 
I think it's it, it depends on the organisation. So um, I have got a um, training sort of course, if you like, a leadership um, training course that I run um, that's called Engage, Enable, Empower. Um, and that is to support leaders and managers to understand how they can really engage their people, how they can coach and, and enable their people to be strong at their, their roles so that they're able to empower them to, to work um, without them sitting on their shoulder, if you like. And, you know, so often, and I've seen it certainly in the recruitment industry, I'd like to think not in, in my business that, that, that I ran, but, you know, certainly in the industry, it's so common that managers get to the role of managers because they're very good at doing the role that they then become the manager of. And, you know, there are, there are scary statistics, aren't there, in terms of um, the, the lack of soft skill training that managers get and I think you know organizations are almost creating leadership failures if, if they don't support their people to understand these concepts and how to actually um, how to actually get their people working in a, in a way where they can thrive so there is that element of, of training that I do but I think it also needs to come from quite a bespoken um, diagnostic point of view because organizations are so different and they you know they focus on different things and their leaders will do things in different ways um so it it's kind of about looking at um what their scenario is what their engagement levels are like what their attrition is like what their exit interviews are telling them if they've got that data in the first place if not how to to go about putting that in place to understand those metrics um, to then look at what that kind of corrective action can look like. But, you know, like, like with so many things, um, certainly in the, the corporate world, it, it needs to come from the top because, you know, running out a training course to managers will only have influence if, if the leaders of those managers are, are bought into it and behave in those ways and, and demonstrate those behaviours because otherwise it all becomes very, very see-through and you're back to looking like you're box ticking again. Have you, have you found there's opportunity by simply looking to help the management work happy and so that they, they get it and then want to cascade it to the rest yeah, of the team? Absolutely. And, you know, again, it's that echoed behavior type thing, isn't it? If, you know, if, if I sit and preach that, you know, you need to be exercising regularly and you need to be sleeping well and you need to be not pushing yourself to the point you're going to burn out but then I'm running around like an idiot not making time for any of that not having lunch you know it it, it all then becomes very transparent and see-through and I think it does start with um you know a, a happy healthy thriving manager typically has got a, a happy healthy thriving team working with them um, so yeah, it, it absolutely starts with the manager. And I think, you know, that, that miss of, um, support and guidance at, at management level is, is really detrimental. And what, what advice would you give to someone who simply has a bad manager? That's not going to be fixed. They want to improve their happiness. Um, what, what advice would you give to someone who feels they're really caught 
in a between a rock and a hard place what i think that's a really it is a really tricky situation and we've probably all been in in situations where um you've you've had a manager that perhaps doesn't um tick all your boxes in what you look for and i think for me one of the key things that i talk a lot about and i know fundamentally is absolutely critical to me is is getting into some form of action so if you have an issue and say for example that is your manager and i don't know let's say they they talk in a really negative way and they give you feedback that's always negative let's use that as an example you can take that on board and feel negative and feel down about it and 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 internalize it and and it, it puts you in a pretty unhappy place you're not necessarily going to be able to instantly fix that manager unless you decide to leave. And let's face it, there's tons of stats, isn't there, about people leave managers, they don't leave jobs, etc. Um, but what I would always advise somebody in that situation to do is to, to, to have a brave conversation. I talk quite a lot about brave conversations. They're not easy to have. Nobody relishes going in and, and dealing with, with difficult issues. But if you feel that you've taken action and if you know that you yourself can, when you next feel negative about that person, know that you've done everything you can to address that issue, you're going to feel it a little bit lighter than you would if you hadn't. Um, so in that situation, I, I would encourage somebody to, to have a conversation first and foremost with that individual um, manager and if that goes nowhere then that perhaps is time to to sort of seek help from another trusted source that that you can um address it with um because it's you know you, you see so many people that do leave jobs for a manager that ultimately could have thrived and, and been successful in that role um but it is yeah, it's it's a, great waste. yeah it's a it's a tricky thing but I, w- I would always say like with any issue you've got you know if you fall out with your partner if you ignore it and let it fester it's never going to get better it's not easy to get it out there and have a discussion about it but it could be that that manager isn't aware that they always talk to you in a negative way and by bringing that awareness to them they take that on board and and improve And if that doesn't happen, then I guess you do make that decision of how big a deal is it to me? Is this big enough that I want to go and look for another job? Or can I actually just go, do you know what? The problem is is his, not mine. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to take this on board in the way that I have done in the past. Yeah. Sure. It's tricky. Yeah. The, the, the ability to use uh, brain hacks. I mean, you, you described one earlier, you know, what do I love doing to analyze Mm. where you really want to be spending your time um i do love that there's uh various different ones there's the the the, the one uh, uh was his name jocko willick the um ex navy seal wrote a book called discipline is freedom and his his response to any situation is good so anything any situation no matter how negative unless it's we're talking about you know, obviously really serious stuff um yeah. you just, you know, if you say good mentally you'll then position things in a way that, you know, all right, so my boss was, were, didn't understand me good. That means I'm going to find a way that means I'm totally independent of their bad behavior. Um, yeah. you know, or I didn't get the promotion good. You know, that means I'm going to develop my skill set in this different way, which is something I've been interested in anyway. And um, if the boss finally just never listens to you good, 
because I'm going to go alone and do my own thing. So that yeah. there's always a that mindset element of how you tackle things and and um, change your reaction to yeah. a particular event can. So yeah, it's so important, isn't it? That kind of voice in our heads, that kind of mind chatter that we all have, inevitably negative comes into that because our brains for, for whatever reason are programmed to go to negative thoughts more easily than they are to positive. But, you know, if you can truly switch that round, if I go back to, I consciously thought of it yesterday, you know, I, I could be annoyed that my days got thrown out of kilter with sitting in queues at minor injuries. However, the good in this is that I'm with him. He's fine. He hasn't broken anything, you know, just almost looking always for, for that positive angle helps you manage so many situations. It's not easy to do. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I've nailed it by any means, but the way you talk to yourself is so important. And that's, that's kind of, we could do a whole podcast on that, but you know, that, that, um, training of your brain to, to protect yourself and to talk positive, positively to yourself is, is a massive, a massive ability to, to see things in a better way. Yeah. There, there, there's a, just a, 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 another brain hack that I, I love and will share, which is the, I think is a stoic uh, brain hack where um, if you want to, if you want to feel happy, instant happiness, all you have to do is, is close your eyes and wish for all the things that you already have. And then open your open your eyes, and all your dreams have come true. And it's a, it's a, it sounds so stupid, but it's yeah, possibly the it. most, it's an incredibly powerful exercise which will completely change your your brain state and your and and how you feel. It's so you know the answer to so many of these for me personally when I when I examine um, you know how to be happy. So much of it is it's just sitting right in front of you. And it's a very simple exercise of changing your perspective slightly. And it's free. It just sits there. It's, it's um, uh, just changing how your synapses react or perceive certain things. And, and you have everything that you, you need. Um, uh, you know, it, it's just there. So, it, you know, it, it's, not at a, it's not via a new iPhone upgrade. It's really, <laughs> um, you know, it, the, the tools are all there. You just have to use them. Anyway, I won't, rant, I won't rant too much about it. Um, it is that whole gratitude element. Again, me of a couple of years ago, if somebody said to me, you need a gratitude journal, you need to journal these thoughts and write down what you, I would have gone, what? Like I've got time to do that. Yeah. It's so valuable. It is so, so valuable to, to literally take five minutes at the end of each day. I think, you know, this is such a valuable little tip that um, I've been doing take five minutes at the end of each day before you kind of switch off your, your laptop or your computer or whatever and just think, what's gone well today? What am, I, what am I grateful for that's happened today? And what have I done well? You then finish your work day in so much more positive state than if you just think, oh, I've got to run, slam your, work, your laptop down and, and kind of run out the door. Um, and again, you know, appreciating... And you know, you take that obviously clearly into your, your wider life, and that, that kind of gratitude is so fundamental to happiness, hundred percent. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. But before we, um, I'm conscious of time, Catherine. Before we, before we close out the um, the podcast, uh, is there any advice you'd like to give to people that are looking to go alone, who are thinking about starting their own business? Any, any, any wisdom you'd like to offer, given the experience you've had over the last um, year or so? I think you're probably more qualified than I am um, to to give advice in this on this field but I guess know why you're doing it first and foremost know your why um because I think if you like I said kind of at the top of the conversation if you can keep bringing yourself back to why you're doing what you're doing you will find a clarity and a will if you like (laughs) an inner strength to keep moving forward even through the tough times um it's for me so far and like i say the journey is quite new but for me so far it's been um a really liberating exciting period of time i think i've felt more fear come up for me than i've probably ever experienced because i think you know once you've when you're in the corporate world and you've got people all around you and you've got a job title and you've got an income and you've got all of these badges of, of success, you kind of have got, um, you can always rely on that a little bit. Um, whereas when you are going solo, you really are going solo. Um, and the other thing that has massively benefited me actually two other things, um, is the self-care element that I've talked about. Putting your self-care, your emotional, your physical well-being front and centre and spending time focused on that. The other thing that's been massively important to me is, is having social connection and having and surrounding myself with positive people that are in a similar situation to me. And I've been really, really fortunate. I've got probably a handful of, of six or seven other women that are local to me, that are running businesses themselves, that have got similar challenges. We support each other. We give each other ideas. We work together. So if we're feeling flat for whatever reason, we'll have a co-working day. Um, and that has been absolutely um, critical to me. Um, in pushing through and the, the, like I say, the roller coaster of, of highs and lows that you have inevitably when you, you're getting something off the ground. Yeah. Great. I was going to, I was going to ask you about mentors and, and obviously, I mean, for me, I've been very, very lucky. I've, I've, I have, and, and do have great mentors and that's, you know, it's so helpful when you're building your own business to, um, to have that. And it sounds like you have some good ones. Yeah, I've got a really good little little gang of um, support structure, I guess. But yeah, it's funny, funny you say that. I've just about I was writing a post last night about mentors, um, and I read a quote that said, um, "Their hindsight, let their hindsight be your foresight." And I just thought that's so powerful in yeah. in the value of a mentor. You know, they've been there, they get it, they've you know, they've experienced things, let that guide you. Um, yeah. And, and ask for help. We yeah, all have I, strengths and weaknesses, don't we? And it's, it's asking for help where you need it. Well, 
before we close down the podcast, um, I just it would be great for you to share where people can find out more about Work Happy, how they can get in touch with you. Um, I know that you're big on Instagram, but how can people find out more? Um, so yes, on Instagram at the Work Happy Project. Um, I generally am, am quite active on there. Um, on LinkedIn as Catherine Tiddy. Um, and I'm soon to launch my website, which um, I'm hoping will be live um, before the end of the year, which I will, I'll obviously put links out onto to both LinkedIn and Instagram at that point. Great. Are you, are you on Twitter or anything like that? You've I'm not, on, on? no, I'm not, a, I'm not on Twitter actually. It's probably something I should, but yeah, I was given advice to kind of pick your channels and master them before you start trying to go to uh, too sort of diverse so yeah for now I'm, I'm Instagram and LinkedIn great well, Catherine thank you so much for talking to me and I mean it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and the you know the work happy project um, I'm sure it's going to be a great success and and your story is a is a great story so thank you very much oh thank you so much for inviting me on it's been brilliant thank you cheers